movable estates. Stand on the concrete rectangular surface and face the water. You are standing by the sea, but you could also be on, in, or out at sea, all in the same place. Being in water or near water is relative. It depends on your very precise timing. You see water ahead of you now, but land and sea have negotiated where to meet for millennia. The powers of waves and storms have repeatedly constructed and reconstructed this malleable seafront. Look down toward the shoreline. You are looking at billions of microscopic particles, shells, coral, fossils, quartz, silicates, the detritus of multi-species bodies, weathered pieces of bricks, stones, buildings, microfibers and nanoplastics. Together they record the slow processes of erosion, decay and impossible disappearance. We call it sand. Turn left and walk north into the dune grass. A trodden footpath is straight ahead. Walk forward, leaving the concrete surface behind you, leaving a safe distance between you and the edge. Keep walking along toward the diamond-shaped sign. Sand has been moved around by gales, strong winds of uncertain origin. Gale comes from the Old Norse word for breeze or the Old Danish word for bad and furious. In Old English, it is related to the enchanted and bewitched, to singing, to yelling. The word has a particular sound that penetrates our ears and tells us of possible forecasts. In meteorology, gales are defined by their speed, 32 to 63 miles per hour. Their impact on the built environment has personified storms over time, hinting at nature's bad feelings towards us. As our medieval ancestors settled on the coast, the sea surged in ways they could not comprehend. So they began to experience these waves as nature's punishment. The sea became enraged, full of anger and destructiveness. Flood events were described as a rage of the sea that breaches the coastline. Violent storms, cruel weather, merciless winds, furious gales, fearful tempests, fierce waves, angry clouds. That wind and water can be annoyed by humans is no big surprise. Many gods, rituals and beliefs have tried to appease inclement weather. 
But what if the raging sea is just trying to recover what has been taken from her? In Western Europe, almost 300 towns and villages and many islands were lost to sea between the 11th and 16th centuries, together with over one and a half million lives. In today's Netherlands, Frisian tribes learned to build earth mounds where they could retreat during recurrent periods of high water. Those who didn't were lost to the sea. Floods have had a continuous impact on the coast of East Anglia. Dunwich in Suffolk, once the sixth most important town in England, is a well-known example of a British Atlantis. Now entirely underwater, bells from its sunken churches are said to toll in strong gales. But it might be just the sound of yet another wind. Keep walking north, looking toward the diamond-shaped sign. Its message faces the water and might still be out of view. As floods pressed continental Europe, Anglo-Saxons began to reach the coasts of Britain. The forts of the Saxon shore, a series of fortifications of the late Roman Empire on both sides of the English Channel, were built in what were once strategic estuaries. Brancaster, Caister, Burr Castle and Walton Castle are the examples in East Anglia. Fear of flooding led to further dispossession. Areas of low-lying fen once dug out for peat, filled with seawater and could no longer easily be used for grazing. Despite opposition from local commoners, the General Drainage Act of 1600 aimed to privatise them. As common rights were overturned, investors in so-called land improvement were rewarded with a share of the lands reclaimed. The new land was allotted to the new landowners, but the fens continued to flood and hundreds of drainage windmills had to be erected. Some still stand inland. Forts, windmills and churches, above and below water, are unique landmarks, sea marks and flood marks. They provide a chronology of the changing seas, ships crashing into roofs and roofs crashing into ships. Landlocked port towns, sea-locked boats, lighthouses rebuilt closer to receding shorelines, bridges that have become too low to let boats through. Structures like the tower in Eccles, Norfolk, were stranded for centuries on the eroding beach. The Eccles Tower has been depicted on so many canvases and engravings that its history acts as a record of tides and storms. While most of its historic neighbours lie underwater, its above-water surroundings have become literal sites of 20th century retreat for weekends, summer or retirement. <laughs> 
Once at the sign, turn left towards the village scape behind you. You might see the tower of a redundant lighthouse now deep in land. Start walking towards the beach. As coastal sands shifted several centuries ago, Winterton had to build a second lighthouse. Whenever sea captains could see both lighthouses in line, they knew the right way to reach the coast. But as tidal action continually reformed the seabed, the smaller lighthouse fell into disuse. Previous alignments no longer led to somewhere safe. And the small lighthouse eventually washed away. Begin to find a safe path down to the beach. There is a double track in front of you, which will take you down to the beach in a gentle slope. Once on the beach, walk toward the shore, as close to the water as you feel comfortable. When you have reached the shore, stand at the water's edge and look out to sea. Although most of the East Anglian coast has been eroding, the beach around Winterton grew in the 18th and 19th centuries. Marum grass was planted to bind the dunes together and prevent further shifts in the sand. By the beginning of World War I, 400 yards already separated the Winterton Lighthouse from the sea. The area in between became known as the Valley. Today, the lighthouse has become a vacation home offering sea views from afar. As the water again approaches the dunes, who knows, one day it might become useful again. About one mile north, and a bit to your left, there was once the village of Winterton Ness. It was built on the fatal headland between London and Scotland, known as the Devil's Throat, where dozens of vessels at a time could easily be engulfed by the waves. The village's two working lighthouses, its homes, and dozens of other nearby villages are all long gone. Bend down and take a handful of sand. You might still find some traces. Seafaring needed coastal villages as much as it needed ships. The 1703 and 1736 floods of East Anglia spurred the creation of beach companies, organisations run by off-duty sailors and fishermen who risked their own lives to save others. It is no surprise that Winterton, with its long history of shipwrecks, became one of the earliest and most dominant companies of Norfolk beachmen. Competition was fierce. Money obtained from salvage rights or from ship's master's payment for navigational guidance, even from individual passengers wishing to make sure of being rescued, was shared out among members of the company. Beachmen bargained for the best deal, agreeing on the terms and the sum before the rescue was undertaken. Still, when the sea was too rough to negotiate aboard a sinking ship, beach companies would assist nevertheless, hoping for a financial reward in thanks. In Winterton, 
Rescues were split between two rival beach companies that only joined forces when the beachmen of Pauling began to encroach their territory. These teams later evolved into lifeboat crews and ultimately into the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Behind you, you can see June's cafe and the car park. Next to it is a smaller square building. Head towards it. A contemporary version of Winterton's Beachmen. No rescue fees involved. The Coast Watch Tower, which was recently repositioned further inland. It houses a self-governed observation unit, proudly run by local volunteers. Stop. To the right of the horizon, there is a major offshore dredging site. The seabed is divided into several fields, known by Crown Estate licences as the East Anglia 212, 240, 328, 361 to 242, and 401 to 402 areas. The government receives royalties for each truckload of sediment mined from these enclosures. It might not be a coincidence that this part of East Anglia is so strongly affected by coastal erosion. The sea seems almost to be claiming back its lost matter, sucking it out of the nearby cliffs. Dredging has broken up the bottom of the sea. Thousands of tons of aggregates are extracted per hour. As the seabed is strip-mined, we are assisting in a new form of oceanic clearances. Even the fish are leaving. Fifteen years ago, fisherman Rodney Byrne says, they dredged off Orford Lighthouse. We've had no fish in that area whatsoever. There's no way it's going to recover now if it hadn't for 15 years. That was a brilliant piece of fishing ground, messed up and devastated. You see what we got today, says another local fisherman. It's all scrimping and scraping, by all means scrimping and scraping. Look at the horizon. While it now separates East Anglia from continental Europe, the North Sea was once a landmass that connected the two sides. Until World War I, it was known as the German Ocean. But as political tensions escalated, the sea was detached from any specific nation and reattached to its location. This former connector became a battlefield where submarines, warships and aircraft fought against each other. In World War II, a state-of-the-art radar system was built at RAF Nettershed base in Norfolk to intercept Nazi attacks. Even the sunken town of Dunwich became a node in the radar network. During the Cold War, Radars listened to sound overseas. Underwater listening was originally developed for submarines, but in the 1970s, new technology used sound to assess whether oceans were warming in response to increased atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide. The speed of sound travelling through water can approximate 
ocean temperature variations. Based on the idea of the acoustic thermometer, the Acoustic Tomography of Ocean Climate project was launched after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1991. Cold War technology was repurposed for a war against global warming, for a war to control weather patterns. The climate can be heard underwater. Turn around and walk back toward the track near the diamond-shaped sign. Climate has always been changing on the eastern shores of Anglia. In January 1953, the Great North Sea Flood was the deadliest event in post-war Britain. Winds of 140 miles per hour combined with a spring tide to break through coastal defences. In East Anglia, 300 people died and 32,000 were evacuated. In the Netherlands, numbers rose to 1,800 lives and 65,000 evacuations. And the inspiration for the extensive Dutch Delta Works plan to shorten the coastline of the country was found. Coastal erosion has been more severe in East Anglia, especially between Winterton and Cromer, than anywhere else in Britain. In addition to changing tides, human action is now also a major contributor to the disappearance of the country. Moving shingle bars, sandbanks and river courses, creating sea barriers, disrupting the seabed for extraction. Since the 1960s, dredging sand and gravel off the coast of Norfolk and Suffolk has been a profitable business. Marine aggregates are one of the main ingredients in concrete, which is, of course, indispensable to the building industry. No small part of London real estate is, in fact, East Anglian seabed. Norfolk's marine gravel was used to build Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. Holland, in the meantime, is strengthening environmental regulations to protect its coast from erosion and has recently banned offshore dredging. According to the British Marine Aggregate Producers Association, nearshore sandbanks play a key role in defending Norfolk's coastline by absorbing wave energy. The seabed depressions that are left behind after dredging, however, they claim have no effect. The aggregate producers insist that this erosion is a natural process. Surely they would be happy to provide sand for beach replenishment as well. The designers of a recent £22 million sand barrier in Walcott, which raised the beach by seven metres, said it is normal for new beaches to wash away. All their efforts washed out to sea when the newly replenished beach returned to how it always wanted to be. Interfering in the movement of sand might actually be causing, not solving, coastal erosion. Arriving at the track behind the diamond-shaped sign, look at the Winterton Church spire in the distance. 
Coastal change is no new threat. Defensive, militarized language to refer to coastal futures mirrors the architectures of fortification strewn along the shores of Norfolk. Shoreline management plans now deploy four different coastal strategies that use war lingo to convey urgency. To hold the line, to advance the line, to retreat the line and surrender, to do nothing. In the absence of traditional wars, city walls and military bunkers now parallel climate and flood defences. As walls fall apart, they change their mission. Turn left and walk back towards the car park, the water to your left-hand side. Beginning in the 2000s, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of rocks from a quarry in Larvik, Norway, were shipped to the Lowestoft coast to protect it against erosion. Larvik is today the only quarry in Europe designated to arm the coast against waves. Wars are not only fought against climate and floods, they are also fought against eviction by the newly recognised coastal enemy. Homes with priceless coastal views have lost their monetary value in the face of similarly priceless insurance. Governmental compensation schemes are controversial. Local residents feel that they are on the front line of a national concern but are nevertheless neglected by municipal organisations. When it rains, it pours. In this context, a number of community groups in Norfolk have built up resistance against erosion. In 1953, a resident of Walcott used an engine tractor to pull his house away from the cliff. In 2018, Lance Martin's house in Hemsby was in danger of being demolished after a big storm. So, he moved it ten metres further from the cliff that had formed overnight. When the beast from the east crumbled the cliffs of Hemsby, many Hemsby dwellers evacuated with the imminent risk declaration. Their homes were no longer theirs. Cliffs eroded again in a second storm. Houses had to be saved, not only from the eroding coastline, but also from the authorities who wanted to demolish them. After the storms, only five foot separated one resident's bungalow from the edge. With a public demolition notice pinned on the front door, he sliced the back half of his house and moved it to the front. Losing the bungalow would have meant losing the property, the leasehold and the land altogether. As the cliffs kept crumbling, the distance to the edge was too tight for local council requirements. He sliced the back of his house off again, but it wasn't enough. The following day, officers threatened to demolish the property for good. In a final attempt, and working in collaboration with local residents, he used a tractor to pull the house, or what was left of it, to the front boundary line of the property. As you approach the cluster of fishermen's sheds, notice the one closest to you, 
to your right-hand side. In 2019, it used to stand right by the cliff. With the approval of the rollback registry of Norfolk, the owner lifted the shed with a digger and relocated it to where you see now. Rollback is the process of moving properties at risk away from the erosion zone. With the huts in view, find a place to sit on the marram grasses. This will be your final stop on the route. Take a moment to feel how the sandy cliff beneath you moves, even though it is covered by the grasses. The act of lifting and moving a building landwards is not new. Several lighthouses, like the Beltout Lighthouse in Sussex, have been relocated in the past few decades. Beltout crept 17 metres inland in 1999. These are not just sumptuous mechanical exercises. Moving structures collectively is a performative act that brings people together for a common cause. In Taiwan, the Ejie Wangkong Temple was pulled 160 metres by more than a thousand devotees to save it from demolition. In Malaysia, it was not uncommon for villagers to collectively lift and carry houses to a new location, a practice also standard in Indonesia and the Philippines. People who became personally close would likewise move their houses nearer together. After marriages took place, the bride and bridegroom's family would also move their houses closer to that of the couple. As climatic events surprise us more and more often, buildings might have to become more adaptive to uncharted waters. In places experiencing man-made subsidence like Houston or New Orleans, houses are already being lifted on stilts due to recurrent flooding. In Lincolnshire, developers have found a niche in flood-prone real estate and are designing a house that lifts itself. These are the real properties of movable estates. Mobile houses are not only on wheels. Thinking about movable estates is a process of reimagining coastal inhabitation and the way the shores are managed. In the US, where flood insurance is controversial, new approaches are trying to adapt to a shifting coastline. North Carolina, Maine and Massachusetts have banned the construction of hard sea defences. California is removing hard edges to soften its shores. In Staten Island, coastal property owners are coming together to form collective buyout groups to relocate safer ground and restore coastal lands into the wetlands that it once housed. In times of unsettled weather, the country might be better off if it allows itself to shrink. When we look at sand, we may no longer see traces of the sea, but we may come to see sand as a sign of being too close to the water. Perhaps we can reimagine houses to move with the tides. You can make your way back to the concrete plinth or to the car park where you began.